Hi, good afternoon. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, on-site and online um, for this uh, series of Doc Talks this year um, at Cannes Docs, the industry program for anything documentary here at Marché du Film Festival de Cannes. Uh, I'm Pierre Alexis Chevit. I'm in charge of this program. If you need me, find me at Cannes Docs the venue up there at Riviera. Um, and we are extremely happy uh, to be having a terrific panel today, hosted, curated by, and hosted by our very good friends at Day, Documentary Association of Europe. And Bridget O'Shea will be moderating this session today about the market value of creative documentaries um, and trying to figure that one out because it's a tricky one. Um, I'll let you, Bridget, introduce our panelists. Um, thank you for being on this panel today and joining us in Cannes. Some of you for the first... No one for the first time, but some of you... Yeah, and some of you with whom we haven't connected yet, so it's about time that we connect and include you a bit more in this doc thing we're trying to do here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pierre-Lexi. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much to Khan Docs for having us. It's so nice of you. And thank you for giving us total curatorial freedom to discuss lots of different topics and also trying to... Um, uh, find new ways to address our common problems that we've always had since the dawn of time, it seems. I've been working um, for documentary film markets for 15 years or a little bit longer, and um, the narrative for the whole time has been that the industry is in some kind of crisis and that there's not enough available options and everything is so hard and we're working so hard and it's impossible and distribution is impossible and no sales out of Sundance and streamers and restructures and market crashes and recessions, et cetera, et cetera. And this is an extremely boring negative feedback loop to be stuck in because actually all kinds of exciting things are happening every day and also through... Um, crisis comes opportunity, of course. So I'm super, super happy to talk maybe with like new faces for the classical documentary market, but actually people who are deeply experienced in and the idea or the wish that we can be in a little bit of a new kind of conversation about what the value of creative documentary filmmaking is by the people who are bringing either the films to the audiences, finding methods for the exploitation of rights, finding ways to monetize um, films outside of maybe classical, theatrical or linear television, but also people who are making like amazing investments inside of our value train, thinking more broadly about what that value chain is and where kind of the links meet each other, both globally, but also trying to bring some focus on the US market because we in Europe also find that sometimes difficult to understand. And I'm also super happy because we're live streaming these discussions. So if you're watching on the internet, hello, we wish you were with us, but it's very raining and depressing in Cannes outside of the market and the cinema. So you're really not missing out this year. It's just very damp. So rather than um, clumsily introduce our panelists, I thought it's better that they actually present themselves. Maybe Edo, Edo my um, apologies, you are sitting next to me, so I'm just going to start with you. There is no hierarchy of who gets to go first. Would you like to explain to our audience who you are, what the institution is you work for, your professional background, etc.? Um, my name's Edo Choi. I'm uh, the Associate Curator of Film at the Museum of the Moving Image in 
Astoria in Queens, New York City. Uh, and uh, I've been uh, film, a film programmer for the past uh, 12 or 15 years um, in New York and Chicago before that. Uh, I've also um, worked as a projectionist and a, I write film criticism freelance. Uh, and the main reason I'm at Cannes this year, and uh, this year is my second year, I was at Cannes for the first time last year, uh, is to uh, scout films for our annual festival, First Look, uh, which takes place every March at the museum. And, uh, and then also just to keep abreast of what's going on. Can you name a couple of titles of like hotshot films that have been in First Look or films that you've been really proud to bring to audiences in New York? Um, from Cannes or just... Anywhere. As uh, long as it's a documentary. As long as it's a documentary. <laughs> or uh, nonfiction. Yeah, I mean... Or hybrid. Uh, I, I was really excited uh, a couple years ago to screen a film was in Locarno, I think, at first. Uh, Locarno Critics Week, A Thousand Fires by Saeed Faruqi. So we um, brought that to... That was it, it, the film's New York premiere, and that's a film I'm really proud that we screened, for instance. Um, and uh, more recently, uh, I'm really, really proud that we gave um, my, my friend um, and a filmmaker whom I really admire, Mary Helena Clark's feature, A Common Sequence, it's New York premiere after it world premiered at Sundance this year. So those are two films. And maybe just one last thing before we move on to our next panelist. So when you're maybe thinking about films and um, people are thinking if First Look is a good place for their New York or uh, sorry their North American premiere, what do you think makes the festival or um, Momi special and different to other opportunities? Um. Well, I think this is a hard question. I'm sorry. I yeah. promise it's not a test. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that when we select something at the museum, it's a very small team. The festival is only programmed by myself uh, and my colleague, Eric Hines. It's not a committee. Uh, we, we, we have some other colleagues who consult on the program and sometimes select one or two films themselves. Uh, but on the whole, it's, it's pretty intimate how we select work and um, how it arrives to us. We're not uh, a submissions festival, uh, which could sound perhaps like it's a little harder to get into or more elitist, but that's not really the point. The point is we're small and we, can't, we, can't, we don't have a platform to do that. So we're really going out to filmmakers, and we're also doing a lot of research on international festival lineups, such as uh, Vision du Réel. Um, and uh, so being, so with First Look, what is special to me about it is that sense that we really personally believe in what we're showing. And it, it's coming from that. It's not really coming from any other kind of calculation that larger festivals might have. Great, thank you. Emily Bergès, tell us about yourself. Tell us about Vision du Réel. Good afternoon. Um, so uh, I'm the artistic director of, of Vision du Réel, which is a festival based in Switzerland, uh, which ha just had its 54th edition in April. Uh, we have both uh, 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 official selection and, uh, and, and industry, quite a, a big one. Uh, I think like one of the particularities of 
a vision du réel is that it takes place in a small town in, in Switzerland and uh, it's both really absurd to be making a festival in this small town which has basically nothing you know no cinemas barely cinemas we just have two proper cinemas we are building we are basically building everything in this town and somehow it makes it great because uh, it's like really easy to you know meet people and and you know create a festival the whole town becomes the festival the, the festival becomes the town and uh, i think that's what makes it so so special because uh, it's very simple and for us it's uh, really essential therefore to create something that is super coherent uh, so we are quite a small team uh, um, in regard to what we are doing. Too small, really. Uh, but it's about really kind of like selecting projects, selecting films, and kind of like picking uh, people uh, in terms of guests and industry that somehow together are going to be able to, you know, create something and work together in order to, you know, have more films coming out afterwards. Yeah, I think that Vision de Réel is one of like the greatest networking platforms for a documentary, creative documentary in Europe at the moment. I appreciate it so much, as you said, that the whole town becomes like a networking platform for documentaries. We're all treated the same. We all eat the same food. We all drink the same wine. We watch the same films. It's really nice that to like remove kind of the silly badge hierarchy. Of course, there are places that are more intimate and closed for intimate and closed discussion, which makes sense. But there is like a, a general atmosphere that is extremely productive towards supporting very difficult to sell work, I think, which is very nice. And also, which we'll get into a little bit in a moment, like despite it being an older organization, it's like always in kind of a period of um, revamping or um, moving with the times, which is really important for legacy to do, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think it's really important to, to me, it's really a matter of, you know, trying to expand things like more and more all the time, like both cinematically, but also in terms of the people attending in order to kind of, uh, you know, contributes to uh, having non-fiction or documentary, we can also talk about that, the words, but you know, kind of like making it less of a ghetto and, and try to kind of like opening up because I think that's both in terms of audience uh, and in terms of production, it's really important to think, you know, in wider terms. So we are really kind of like working on that a lot as well. Uh, and uh, we are also working a lot uh, in regard to discovering new people and discovering films, uh, we get 3,000 submissions each year and we create the selection really out of this 3,000 uh, title. And we have each year uh, around 80 or 90 world premieres. So it's really about kind of launching new films. Uh, of course, there is always this issue and this complaint that, you know, this world premiere policy is a pain for everybody. I agree. I would also kind of sometimes be really happy to program films that are already out there that I love but I think also it's important to give space to new films and it's uh, interesting and uh, actually attractive for the industry to know that they will discover new film and therefore they come and therefore they bring also you know resources that they are gonna uh, invest into the project that are part of the industry so it's really about kind of like creating you know an atmosphere and a context that is gonna be you know fertile for everybody and mm. try and allow you know the, the films to benefit from the industry the industry to benefit from the film so it's really a matter of yeah creating a, a whole event that you know is going to be super productive great ryan tell us about you thank you oh so much for joining us today it is so nice when a distributor is willing to like sit on a stage in public in front of both friends family and the internet 
and talk about distribution possibilities for unsellable films. Thank you, Bridget, for that introduction. Uh, that's great. Uh, my name is Ryan Krivashay. I run a company called Grasshopper Film in the US. We're based in New York. Uh, it's a company that I started in uh, 2015, so about seven or eight years ago at this point. Uh, we release uh, fiction films, documentary films, short films. Uh, I think our philosophy has always been that uh, while theatrical is vital for the life of many films, many documentaries in the U.S., there's many other routes of distribution. So we work a lot on the streaming side, of course, these days, on the non-theatrical side, even on the, on the home video side, uh, and television as well. Uh, prior to um, Grasshopper, I ran a company called the Cinema Guild for 13 years. So we release a lot of, uh, over the years, we've released a lot of documentaries, a lot of creative documentaries such as this. Uh, some examples, last year from Cannes, we were here, we picked uh, Pacifiction, not a documentary, but a fantastic film. Uh, and the documentary Dehumani uh, Corporis Fabrica by Verena Paraval, Lucien Casting-Taylor, fantastic film, in release now in the U.S., uh, and then over the years, films like Last Men in Aleppo and Leviathan, uh, Marwin Call, Beaches of Agnes, have all films that we've uh, are all films we've brought to the U.S. Um, in addition to Grasshopper, we recently launched a streaming platform called Projector, which is a uh, an academic streaming platform for libraries, museums, and universities in the U.S. And the idea is to maybe find a different way to bring more creative films, more creative documentaries. Uh, to audiences. So our, our first partner on Projector was the New York Public Library, and so that basically means uh, anybody in the state of New York has access to over a thousand films on Projector for free. They don't have to pay anything. The New York Public Library kind of handles it all. Uh, and we have amazing films on there from us and from other distributors, experimental shorts from a company like Canyon Cinema in San Francisco, uh, and many other like-minded distributors. Great. I think this is like a perfect place to um, start, unfortunately, around like a very boring subject, which is definition of terms. Because one of the things I also notice about when I'm one of the, my very nice jobs that I do as a freelancer is um, at Vision du Réel doing every year some moderation for their pitching um, event. And at that pitching event, of course, there are international projects that are presented. And sometimes, or every year, there's one or two projects from North America and the sea of like European and international projects also. And often, a US-based filmmaker will talk about experimental filmmaking, which is very different to what like I interpret experimental filmmaking to be. Um, and so I'm wondering if we could just start, actually, by talking about like what is a creative documentary exactly do you think we see creative documentaries like programmed in like the World Cinema Competition of Sundance compared to like what we're doing somewhere else? Like where do you, where do you find like when you're thinking about where a creative documentary is, where are you going to go look for it? Does this make sense? Is anyone willing to tackle this super hard subject first? <laughs> go for it, Edo. Oh, uh, <laughs> okay. Um, well, with respect to the World Competition at Sundance, I guess anything can happen. Right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, as a programmer, I tend to try to keep an open mind about what a, an artistic film or a, a creative documentary, so to speak, or author-driven documentary uh, constitutes. Uh, it, you know, in America, the notion of experimental film or avant-garde film has a particular historic meaning uh, or cinema verite or direct cinema or underground film, any of these 
these terms, and they stem from tropes and kind of generic forms that arose in the 60s, I would say, for the most part. Uh, and I, I think today, a lot of those forms feel, at, on the one hand, and are often criticized for being um, outmoded or not addressing themselves to, like, uh, let's say, current political exigencies or needs or questions. Um, and at the same time, there's a great yearning for them because of what they represent in the context of the questions about cinema's continued relevance or ability to speak to the times. Um, for me, I'm looking for films that retain the spirit of something like independent film without necessarily resembling what it was in the past. And that's really important, whether you're talking about a documentary or an experimental film or something that is in between those poles. It's very hard, actually, I would like to come to you, Ryan, because like, on the one hand, you want to su support radical, outspoken work, especially when you're in this so-called value chain and you're somewhere closer to the beginning. You're working with, um, with directors or filmmakers who are in development or in production and are looking to reach the so-called international market, whatever that might be. And so sometimes you really don't necessarily want them to label their work as creative or experimental documentary because then it's like, oh my God, this is an unsellable product, no one will finance you. And so when you're working in that niche, how do you also shift the narrative? Why do you choose this specific place and to work with these works when they have such a dirty reputation? Well, I think if I'm trying to be optimistic and I told myself that I would be coming over here in discussing this, um, th that, that term has changed quite a bit. And I, I was thinking of ways to define uh, what a creative documentary was earlier today. And every tenant that I came up with, I quickly discounted because I think that's the beauty of creative documentaries is that you can't really define them. They're really kind of indefinable. I think we all know what they are when we see them. But it, it's, it's been heartening for me to see terms like experimental and hybrid be more accepted over the years. I mean, some years back, I think maybe 12 years ago, uh, we released a documentary called Sweetgrass, which at the time was viewed as kind of radical and experimental. And we had a, a, initially a difficult time getting people to be aware of it until people actually saw it and kind of fell into it. Now that film is hardly viewed as experimental as you know th those filmmakers uh, following films have shown. Uh, hybrid documentaries as well. At one, at one time, hybrid was a taboo word. Like if, if, we have, if we were to pitch a documentary or any kind of work as a hybrid work to a, to a press or to a theater in the US, it would be you know, kind of crickets on the other end. That has changed considerably these days. And I think that's kind of a positive. And thinking about like festivals, museums, these kind of like legacy, older organizations, especially maybe I start with you on this one, Emily. Like, what do you think is the purpose of the film festival inside the value chain without thinking about it like in too much of a literal sense? You know, like, of course, as you were saying, you have the obligation somehow with your resources to be introducing new work to audiences. In the case of Vision de Riel, I guess your audience is probably split 50-50 between international guests and, and accredited people who are in the cinema as much as your local audience. How do you see like, your role in keeping like, a healthy industry going for or marketplace going for the so-called creative documentary? Well, I mean, first, I, I, um, I, there are also words that I don't use 
even if they are maybe like more accepted, I, there are words that I really don't use, like, and I really don't want to use them because I know that for a general audience, they are scary and it's useless. So for instance, the word experimental, I never use. I never, never use. To me, it's like, you know, you shouldn't use it. In, for, in my case, for our audience. Uh, in terms of, you know, I think that uh, uh, um, for me, it's interesting because we have like, because we ha have the chance to do a whole festival and to program 160 films, uh, you know, there is the possibility to create a very diverse thing. And I think that it's exactly what, um, uh, what we should be doing and what is, perhaps allowing us to, you know, kind of like uh, get people to enter through one door and then like try to push them in a, in a direction where they would not necessarily go. So, you know, in order to defend those new voices, uh, I would, you know, try to package things in a way that is not scary. I mean, it's really like about, for me, it's really about somehow kind of fighting, I think that our role, our main role is, in terms of audience, is to fight for people to first be aware that those films exist, because I think there are not many ways to watch them, at least in Switzerland, but probably more broadly. Uh, and, and then kind of like, you know, allow them to understand that it's not boring, it's not scary, because I think that there are a lot of, you know, kind of preconceived ideas about what a documentary might be or is, or those films that are different from what we're used to watch, slower, etc. So I think that there is a lot of work in that regard first for the films to exist. And then in terms of industry, it's a little bit the same, really. And that's what we do with our industry platform, that we try to mix projects that are going to be like you know more readable more understandable for a certain kind of of industry and kind of like accompany them with projects that are going to be maybe slightly more challenging but still kind of again you know not impossible maybe they're going to think okay this is maybe a bit too arty for our taste but still you know why not give it a, a, a shot so it's really about kind of creating something again in order to push things that are maybe a little more radical but like I'm really saying with quotation mark. And do you think, like, I also, I, I really feel, and I know I'm not alone in this thought, that, like, it's really time to challenge also the notion that um, the, the pinnacle or, like, the A-plus kind of distribution you can do for your creative documentary film is, like, festivals, festival premieres. I understand, of course, like, our heavy reliance on, like, the circuit, I understand also its purpose. I feel also myself that sometimes I lean too heavily on it when I'm working with filmmakers in my, also like my um, consulting career where we've become very focused about like placing the films in the markets. I wonder if you ever think, and maybe also this is one for you, Ryan, about how, or maybe you're already doing it, like what is it, like, is there a possibility for like a kind of collaborative model between festivals and distributors to like emerge is it already there and overlooked? Uh, I would love for a collaborative model. I don't know uh, <laughs> how that, I mean, right now the model clearly is not working as it should. I mean, even just like the, the whole festival process, as Emily mentioned, the premiere status and all this kind of territorial stuff that happens, sometimes, most of the time, works against the film's benefit and against the film's future distribution life. Um, Can you be more specific about that? Can I be more specific about that? In what sense? In, in the in the, well, I think certain films premiere at certain festivals um, just to, and we've talked about this, ju just to get a certain logo, a uh, laurel on their thing, and it's not always the best film. If you're one film premiering at a, 
at a major festival and you're overlooked because everybody else, all the press is focused on, you know, all the big uh, Oscar bait that's premiering that year, that, that serves no service to that particular film and filmmaker. You will get overlooked. Uh, and, and it'll be much more difficult to gain a foothold in the distribution landscape after that. If you premiere at a f different festival that really nurtures the filmmakers, nurtures the films, and uh, kind of pushes the films to the right press, knows which press will, will be interested in which film, you have a much greater chance of, getting, of catching the eye of a distributor like myself or, or, or many others. So I think it's a, it's a vital thing. Can I ask you something that I feel a little bit mean to ask you because I should have asked you in advance to prepare, but how many, how many documentaries do you think, or like, you know, maybe more, let's say, outspoken documentaries are finding their way into US distribution at the moment, general distribution? How many in terms of a, a percentage? Yeah, let's, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think, I think the theatrical landscape is very difficult in the US right now, and it has been for a little while. Um, but again, I think there's many other avenues of distribution. And on the one hand, there, I've seen a greater number of documentaries enter the US space than in previous years. I mean, to a part, the streaming landscape has made it a little easier for films to premiere in the US and to reach audiences. Uh, the non-theatrical landscape has made it a lot easier. You, you, know, we, you can do um, community screenings and uh, festival screenings around the US and, really, and event type screenings and build your release around that. So on the one hand, that's a, that's a positive. On the other hand, there are still many, many documentaries that are not making it to the US. So there's still a chasm. I think also, Edo, we were talking um, before over lunch about how important it is also to be um, collaborative in the sense of the filmmakers are attending the festival. Yeah. We were talking about you know, how, how to make those very outspoken documentaries stand out also in a crowd, and I was asking you in particular which films are performing the best yeah. in First Look. I, yeah, whether in First Look or not, at the museum we've found lately, and I would maybe put this to post-pandemic because that seems like the relevant time frame. We're in a different reality now. And we've found that, let's say we really like a film that already has a some recognition, perhaps, that it's something we want to show, but showing something just because you want to show it or you like the film doesn't necessarily lead to the, a translation in terms of the film reaching your audience or reaching an audience. And so more and more, and for First Look in particular, we're leaning towards trying to find a good match between what First Look can do, which is, I mean, I, I'll be frank, it's quite modest. We're a small festival. Um, we're funded entirely through the organization's film budget, annual film budget, um, and then some small sponsorship and funds that we can raise, uh, and then what publicity we can handle within, within our organization. And so for us, of films that might be larger, like a bigger fish to catch for your festival aren't really a great fit. It's not a great marriage because they'll have larger expectations than we can deliver. And at the same time, we, we won't necessarily benefit by, you know, disappointing that film or that production. And for me, it's really important that we actually can help 
the films that we're screening and that those films can attain some sort of recognition in a small way or meet an audience that really greets them. And so, yeah, we're more and more trying to find films that are at the right moment in terms of when they've premiered internationally. Uh, their team is very enthusiastic about coming to us and we're, of course, enthusiastic about the work and that we know as actually Ryan was talking about what press we want to uh, pitch around it and, and really get it in front of with locally in New York. Uh, and we know that it's, an, it's a, a film that, that fits the larger curatorial sensibility of the festival, the thing that we're trying to, to create, the identity that we're trying to create. Yeah. I should also say, this is like a discursive format, so if you have questions, you're also most welcome to like raise your hand and join. I just, I beg you, I ask you to refrain from pitching your projects. So that's the only rule. But if you have questions, otherwise at any time, you're most welcome to join in. But my question is also around this um, curatorial line. So, you know, you're asking for world premieres in particular, which is, you know, also asking really for a commitment from a producer or a commitment from a sales agent to give you something that somebody else might like to have too. Yeah. How, how obliged do you feel as a festival to then provide healthy market or value chain opportunities for that film? Do you feel that it's your first... Like, what, how do you set your priorities? Is your first priority, like, the audience that you serve in Vision de Riel is your first priority, your, your curatorial rep um, reputation and the things that you like, is it like, you know, providing opportunities for the films to then have a good life after Vision de Riel? How do you balance all that? Well, I think it would be difficult to say my first priority is the audience or my first priority is the, 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 the directors because, you know, I mean, everything has to work somehow. I definitely feel super responsible in regard to the directors, so I, I would never take that lightly. And uh, and now it's easier as well because this year was my sixth edition, and you know at the beginning because I of course changed things a little bit in comparison to the previous director with whom I was working as well. So it's not like, but still you know you want to kind of do something else, and in order to do that you have to do it by steps. So I know that you know, sometimes there were films that perhaps had a slightly different profile and you have a very clear understanding of you know, what you are trying to, to say, but it's of course you know, hard to say it so clearly when you have uh, 160 films. So it's also a matter of you know, time and, and building something that is of course gonna get clearer and clearer each year. Uh, and uh, it's a big machine, so it really takes time. But I feel very, very responsible that you know, like each film is getting the most out of it. Uh, for sure, some of them are getting more than others. That's you know, but something that you have to accept. But more and more, because like we have quite a clear now image, I think. Uh, you know, people know what to expect both on the industry side, in the audience and the press, we have doubled the press since 2019. So it's also, you know, something that people know and that is of course very helpful when you want to convince people to come. So I do have the feeling now, I feel much more, basically I feel much more comfortable now trying to convince people to come because I kind of know that, you know, I will be able to offer something. I don't always exactly know 
what and how, and sometimes it works better than others, of course. I cannot, you know, we can't, you know. That's the beauty and the unpredictability of the marketplace. That's why it's also, it's a fun playground to be on. Um, and on the one hand, it's like not so great when, when we're in crisis, but as I said, from crisis comes opportunity, which is always really interesting to see. Um, and then there is just such a focus on like the, the feature length creative film that also like shorter formats can be like also overlooked. And then suddenly there's new distribution possibilities for, yes, I see you, sir. Um, there's new possibilities for short films. And then all of a sudden New York Times and The Guardian is everywhere. Mm -hmm. Then like something is closing down. Suddenly CNN, who also used to commission shorts, disappears, you know. So like everything is always moving. And all, all we can do is try and like move with it, I think. Um, but maybe I wonder also kind of the question in reverse, you know, when you're going to a festival or to the, the film markets that are often attached to some kind of film festival, where, um, what's good for you? How do you like it? In terms of the markets when we go to them? Yeah, and what's bad? Both, like... Well, I mean, I, I don't know, but I, I will say to your point that I think you're right. That the most exciting time, I think, is when things are changing in this industry. So it's when... Things are shutting down because there are new things that are, that are coming, coming around the corner. Uh, and right now, everything seems to be in flux. It felt like just like right before the pandemic, even like during, everybody had a pretty clear understanding how everything worked, how all the windows work, theatrical with streaming. And then recently, it's just as if somebody just threw up the cards in the air and you know, we're seeing how they landed. But, but this is the time for opportunities. This is when kind of new ideas are born and new companies are born and... and um, uh, and, and new visions come to light. But in terms of markets, um, well, I mean, I think markets are always important for us at a festival to kind of be able to, um, to kind of see works in progress and films that, are, films that are currently being made and kind of what stage they're at in their, in their production life. Is that, was that your question? Yeah, but do you think that, do you feel that when you're at the marketplace, also producers and filmmakers have realistic expectations of what you can provide for them? Do you think... Do you, yeah, that's, that's enough. Oof, I just watched your little face. <laughs> you want to start? I mean, no, like, not at all. I, I, th I, th I think, I, I mean, that's actually the value of going to a festival with a large market is uh, finally putting uh, faces to names and email addresses and building the relationship that's based on a joint awareness of what you are as a small festival in New York or museum or institution in New York and what they're looking for as a distributor or sales agent for, for the film. I mean, I think that that's really important. Ryan knows the museum because he's, his company's based in New York, so there is an understanding that we have a shorthand that I really need to build with everyone internationally, and that's the point of being here for me. Um, but uh, realistic expectations are always tricky, and whenever we work with filmmakers, that's kind of the first conversation we have, is try to be honest with them about what the realistic potential of their film is. And there's always, uh, there's always a possibility of kind of, you know, lightning in a bottle, or the film captures a zeitgeist and it kind of takes off, which is great. And you always want to create the, um, the landscape for that opportunity. But there's, there's many other ways for a film to be kind of widely seen, uh, even you know, for, for, for a film to be recouped and revenue to come back to filmmakers and royalties and that sort of thing. Uh, 
so I, I think that's always just kind of really um, important, that early discussion with filmmakers and producers. Yeah, it's so, I find it so confusing and mixed up in the documentary industry because of like this also we were talking before in the break, like also part of the reason for me to talk about this stuff is because like documentary cinema, it doesn't function in a single economy. Like you have a couple going on, which is like the economy of creativity and pushing the limits of the genre. I find also just talking about documentary or nonfiction storytelling at the moment extremely constricting. I feel very like labeled and misunderstood by the market because really like our films take different forms. Some are easy to sell to international audiences. Also, some of the streaming platforms might have thought that things were easy to sell to international audiences and now realize that also the formatting isn't really helping us. And then on top of that, we have like a values-based economy where like, you know, you're working to you know, shine light, there's you know, always a truth to power element to documentary filmmaking. Plus then we've got to unpack our colonial roots, which is like a whole thing. And then you have like the, the dollar and cent market economy. And so also whose priorities in that, like which market is taking the priority when is also an interesting conversation. But I would like to give this, this gentleman the opportunity to ask his question. I think you've already answered my question with the conversation. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, it's fine. Uh, I understand from your colleague here that the shorts is next, so I'll wait for my question. Is shorts next? Yes, this lady. Uh, you just need a microphone because we're live streaming. So. This is a question about Grasshopper. Um, uh, I know I really value community screenings um, and sharing uh, work with schools, libraries, and I was wondering if Grasshopper also produces those engagements. Uh, pr produces those events? Yeah, those events, and also if you um, like create study guides, or is that something that the filmmakers or a, a different third party work on? Uh, I think it depends on the film. It's always a case by case, but we're always big believers in kind of supplementary material like study guides and also um, non-theatrical campaigns and, and releases and events around that. So if, if there's a film that we feel we could really tap into a particular audience with, uh, we will always try to kind of work that route. We think it's extremely vital, extremely gratifying, too, for, for, for the film. Um, and I could point to many examples. You know, we have a film called uh, The Hottest August by Brett Story, a film called President 12 Landscapes that had a very large non-theatrical campaign around the country. It was mostly screenings and events. Um, uh, years ago, a film called The Interrupters by Steve James had a fantastic run, and we screened that at prisons and community centers and, and focus groups and work is, uh, working groups around the country as well. Can I ask you? Oh, you have a follow-up question, or oh, oh, it was just to clarify. So it sounds like um, Grasshopper directly works uh, on those study guides or on those uh, community events to yes. produce those events. Yes, yeah, definitely. Okay. Could I ask a follow-up question also, which is like, <laughs> tee hee hee. Like, what's your motivation to do this? To like, do why do you take everything? these? No, why do you take like, these super? Now. Yeah, yeah, why do you take these super hard things and try to help? Not, I mean, I don't think uh, it's like white saviorism. Because they're because they're great films. I mean, I, I think you know, um, it's just hard to, uh, you know, not to sound all like, um, um, what is it like, uh, grass, whatever. Um, it, it, a great film deserves to be seen. I mean, it's kind of a simplistic statement, but it's true. Um, so for us, um, whenever we have, um, whenever we come across a film that is great, that might be viewed as more difficult by others, more challenging than others, 
that's rarely a deterrent for us. That really kind of plays into the next, what I said earlier about being, about setting realistic expectations with the filmmakers and producers about what's possible. But we always try to take it on. We always try to make it work. Um, and, and that's really kind of has been engendered by other people in the business that I've seen um, as I was kind of like working through it. And, you know, I, I worked at a, at a theater called Film Forum in New York that is just kind of... Um, Perfect, and how they how they work to to tap into the local local community in New York, and especially for documentaries and to reach audiences, and and many 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 other companies that I've admired over the years have done similar things. Can you can you give us like a benchmark of measuring success? Because also, you know, success can take like different different shapes and forms, and like. I also don't think that everything has to get nominated for an Oscar. I don't think everything sure. needs to be in general release, blah, blah, blah. But, like, are there moments where you think, like, yes, this is, like, a perfect, like, synergy of all the things that we wanted to, to happen? Well, I think it, it depends for each film. It's a, it's a case-by-case basis. But certainly with a film, like, um, a film like The Hottest August, which I mentioned earlier, I think is a success story for us, um, um, just the number of screenings we've been able to do for that film outside of the traditional theatrical market and the impact that it's had in schools and libraries. I know that film has been taught uh, in curriculums on criminal justice, criminal justice reform. And, and it's for those who haven't seen it, it, it's not a very standard film. It's a film about the criminal justice system in the U.S., but it never sets foot inside a prison. It's always filmed right outside it and shows how prisons interact with their communities. Um, so it's not the most straightforward social issue talking head documentary at all. And the fact that it's been able to have this kind of very nice life um, has been very gratifying. Mm-hmm. And how much is that based on the involvement of the director and the producers? How collaborative is also that process? Quite a bit. I and mean, we, we couldn't do it alone. I mean, if, if you're a filmmaker and you're working on this project for three, five, seven, ten years, you know the space, you have the context already. We'll work with you to kind of put it into our for lack of a better word, machine and kind of run with it. But, um, but, the, but the core information, the core experience certainly comes from them. It's very, very collaborative. Before I come to this lady, and I also see you, sir, so you guys will be next. I have one question for Emily, or not a question. I think it would be great if you could also tell our audience a little bit more about opening scenes and also about... So, of course, you have the cinema, you have finished films that are premiering, but there's also, like, the ecosystem that's around Vision de Real that is also part of this so-called value chain contributing to the value of creative documentaries and maybe about your motivation to do that. Well, I mean, um, uh, you were just using the word machine, which is a word that I really like, actually, in that context, although it's, I know it's yeah, a bit it's controversial, but I think it's really about, indeed, creating a machine you know, that is going to be helpful for as many people as possible. And I less and less, like, funnily, when I was a programmer, I was thinking more of films, and now I really more understand of a group of the films that, you know, together are going to be launched. And it's the same with filmmakers, really. And so when I was appointed, there was this section that was called First Steps Before, which is a really bad name. Sorry for my... Uh, predecessors, really bad name, and, um, and bad name with best of intentions. Yeah, and it's like a, a, a section that is dedicated to first short films and uh, school films, which are in general really, really great. It's not like they are. Jocelyn Barnes always says, which I totally disagree with, but I find it an interesting statement that people's first feature documentaries or first documentaries are often like the best films that those filmmakers ever make because it's the most important thing that they have to say. Mm. And I was like, oof, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's uh, I don't know, I mean, it's a lot of pressure, but they are also like just starting, so I, I guess it depends on the people as well. But anyway, so this section was like, actually like fantastic film under this label, because labeling in a festival is really an important question as well. You know, it's really about how you package things. Sorry, I'm using again a word that I actually dislike, but makes sense. Uh, and, and so we decided to call it now uh, Opening Scenes, Whatever, I mean, we are not very good with names, but at least, you know, it's less kind of like carrying things. And uh, we attach to it uh, uh, a lab. And the idea is really to kind of like take those films, so pick people based on their films, like, you know, because this is what we are good at, we pick good films. And then we allow them to take part in this kind of like four-day uh, thing where we are going to kind of like prepare a program for them. They're going to be like, you know, watching films, spending a lot of time together, uh, taking part in the master classes, but also meeting producers, uh, having some kind of festival strategy clues, etc. So it's really about kind of like taking this opportunity of them launching their first shots uh, to kind of like helping them understand what also is the market and the circuit and the industry. And we have several um, initiatives like that. We also have a development lab and now. So it's really about, again, like taking advantage of so many people meeting with a common interest and, and try to kind of like offer different entrants to different kind of people, different stages of project, people that maybe are less familiar and try and help. It. The development lab is really about kind of like trying, helping them getting ready to even just like, you know, entering pitching. So it's really kind of like before anything, we're going to try to, you know, help you uh, uh, edit a trailer or prepare a dossier or whatever. So it's really kind of like create different circle around the industry and the festival. Great. So we have time for this question here, for the lady in the blue. Uh, here. Yeah. I see you. So my question is about the reality of selling a film to broadcasters, PBS or CN, um, BBC. Do you have any experience doing this with your film? And how is that s such a high reach for a feature first-time emerging director? Well, I mean, I think uh, I'll speak first for, for U.S. Uh, for U.S., the, the broadcast market is not great. There's certainly not as many uh, broadcasters as there once were. Um, you know, CNN isn't buying anymore. PBS is still a fantastic, fantastic outlet, and we do work on that um, to pitch to them. But outside of them, there's not that many. It's mostly kind of streamers, uh, mostly streamers, really. Um, but I can't speak to BBC and the others because we only handle kind of we only handle U.S. rights on our films. I mean, the, I would say my observation, I'm not a sales agent and I'm a very happily retired producer, is that um, there are the, the common pathways that were available to filmmakers, now I'm looking at Heidi Fleischer, which is mean, um, are definitely narrower and the money that public broadcasting system in general can put up is lower. So the slots are less... So there's less opportunity and also the money is less. But then, because the market is diversified because of digital possibilities, there are other places to go to generate both like money and audience, which for us, I think, is in documentary is really important. You want people to see the film as much as you want to make the sale, which is also why sometimes these all rights, say, or these, inter what do you call them, world rights sales are not necessarily um, attractive to every documentary filmmaker, especially creative films, because then you get put in a platform where you'll never get traction. A little bit like the festival thing, where like 
you know, if you are a smaller film in a sea of really big fish, it can be very difficult to stand out and then you bust your world premiere and have no sales and no interest. I don't know if that helps it to answer your question. I don't think it's impossible though. And I love that Shanita Scotland put her hand up because she knows what she's talking about and I only have observations. So maybe if you don't mind, Sarah, we'll just give Shanita the mic first and then we'll come to you next. Hi, no, you got it. I mean, I think the only thing is comment. The only thing I would say, and it's in response to you, because you're absolutely right, that there is a responsibility and there's a reality of what the broadcasters are doing. I'm based in the UK. I have experience with the BBC and beyond. You know, PBS, as Ryan said, is, is, is still buying, and there are others that are no longer buying. I, what I want to say is that there is also... You spoke about the value, different value systems of documentary, and part of that as well is that there is creative value and there's a radical value, which is that audiences have a right to be, like, to a right to culture, to a be right delighted. to be changed and delighted and inspired by documentary. So there is a missing entity here where um, broadcasters need to come in and strongly. We know that they're under pressure. But I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about the definition of what a creative documentary is. Um, and the more that we can hone that and maybe own our, our sense of ownership around independence, um, the way these films are crafted, the work that goes into the, the crafting of these films and own that, then there is another value there that the streamers and the broadcasters can be asked to protect in a more um, rabid way, if you like. So. There is a time of change, there is a t it's a time of opportunity, but it's about owning who we are and then making sure there is a, a world out there so that we can support that. And all of you on the stage are part of selling that out to people. So, I think it would also be nice thinking, as I put my other hat on, as like a, like a, I mean, Documentary Association of Europe, we're advocacy and lobby group as much as we're anything else. And... It can be very hard, I think, with broadcasters because they're not used to it to think in collaborative terms. It's very difficult. So when, you're, when we're talking with broadcasters, often it's very easy to blame broadcasters for all of our problems. That's, and broadcaster bashing is like the oldest um, game of documentary. And also we like to speak truth to, to power. So often we're very willing to call out um, disparity in different kinds of forms and then very willing to overlook other ones, which is also a problem. But... Um, what is also kind of true is it would be nice if they would also understand that lobby groups are coming at them to work collaboratively to defend our territory. Like, we actually don't want to turn them upside down and shake the coins out of their pockets. We'd rather make sure that there's at least space for our films to be shown and that we're not asked to do outrageous, um, uh, like, reporting or um, licensing or um, audits that then take up the majority of the chunk of the sale that you've made, which is like a huge problem, I think. This man has been waiting so patiently. I would love to give him the microphone. Could you raise your hand so that my colleague can see you? Thank you so much. Uh, I just wanted to understand how do we increase the reach for documentaries? Um, is it the marketing that we focus on more or is it the audience, uh, uh, building the audience uh, in a way... Uh, that more and more people really get interested in watching documentaries or it's something else that we really kind of need to focus on to ensure that the reach 
uh, increases. Uh, right now, there's only a certain kind of people who end up watching the documentaries, no matter how great the documentary is. So would really like to hear um, on that from the panel. Thank you. <laughs> You're all too nervous. I mean, I can say, I can play devil's advocate, actually, to that, which is, um, I wonder, and this is also, I was having a conversation with somebody here that I found very interesting about a film um, that doesn't matter which one, that's here, and it's a super intimate family story um, that deals with drama, and she was saying, which I find very interesting, on the one hand, it's amazing that this film is here in this competition, walking these halls, that has such a poor reputation of programming like films made by women, such a poor reputation of programming documentaries in the spaces that they should rightfully occupy, et cetera, et cetera. But then on the other hand, and coming back to the film subject that was released last year, what that does also for the people who are in that, that film is provides them with a much broader field of exposure than, you know, if it's in a more mild release. So I also think, like, it's really interesting to think about, like, what's the best for the film, you know? Like, is our so-called um, peripheral status inside the film industry or inside this market value chain something that is also to our benefit because we can do whatever we want for whoever we want? Because one of the things that annoys me, also because it's very easy now to trash the streamers, they make it really easy, but like, it's very boring to have to make work that is to please the general public, I would say. And maybe that's also why we do the work that we do rather than working in more commercial arms of the film industry. But I don't know, Edo, if you would like to comment on that. Well, I mean, I don't, just to slightly push back on the framing of the question, I, I don't believe that there is one certain kind of person that watches documentaries or ends up watching documentaries. I think there's varieties of documentary film audiences as there are varieties of film audiences. And one of the challenges of finding the audience that best fits a film without pigeonholing the film uh, is related to the question of what is you know, what truly constitutes a creative documentary film to begin with. Uh, and the purpose for me of a festival like First Look, or in a larger and grander way of Vision du Réel, or of a distributor uh, like Ryan, is to always enlarge, try to enlarge what those possible audiences, the size of those possible audiences, um, the makeup of those audiences, and and allow film, whatever films emerge to have the best shot at reformulating um, society. Yeah. I, I would go back to this idea of, you know, kind of like, uh, as you were saying also, like creating an event, packaging, the words you use is, uh, you use. I think it's like, to me, it's really a matter of you know, there, at some point there were discussions about like the, the cinema space being an authoritarian space, which I think is a, it's really great that it's an authoritarian space and you cannot, uh, you know, kind of like move and do things. And I think it's a bit the same. I think that, you know, for me, it's about uh, kind of like attracting people, making sure they, they go to the, to the cinema and then, you know, hoping that they will get something out of it and they will be enthusiastic about it and they will watch more and they will kind of like look for more. 
But I think that my only goal is to make sure they go into the cinema. And I, I'm like really embarrassed to like admit this on stage, but I also think it's really funny. I am always like so shocked when like someone from my non-circle of film friends comes to me and they were like, I was in the cinema, I watched this film and I saw your name in the credits. And I was like, what? You want to watch this thing that I consider like unwatchable and unsellable in the cinema? Like you paid money for this? I get like my free accreditation, I'm going to the festivals, <laughs> like which is such of course an extreme generalization. But I'm really shocked like that really our films are out there. And then I think like, oh my God, if I'm shocked, like I need to have more belief actually. I need to have more faith in audiences also to love the things that we love. In our case, we've been really kind of like seeing the audience change in the past six years, and I'm very hopeful because of that, because it used to be an audience that was generally quite old. Uh, and, and this year, we've had really like had a great diversity of people, and I think that really stupidly, like the fact that we change the communication and that we have like much more kind of like moving image in our you know, communication in general, and that we have a great website, and that we are organizing parties, and all those things are, for us, for a festival, super important, because this is what allows people to get another impression, you know, and sometimes people would say, you know, I remember a young guy telling me, I came, but I just partied, and I was like, well, it's fine, you know, come and, and party, and maybe someday you will enter a cinema, and then we'll, there will be one more person that, you know, is watching those films, and I think it's really about creating events, just like attracting people and kind of like make them watch the films and then it's the film doing the job and whether it works or not, it's not in our hands anymore, but at least we did that part. Okay, last question to this person in the yellow top. Hi. Uh, thank you for this seminar. It's very nice, useful. I just want, was having a point that for me and a lot of my friends, uh, we like more uh, documentaries because it's more real. We like to see something real, something uh, fact. That's why we prefer more documentaries, Yanni. Just uh, not. Also, fiction borrows so much from us. Like, what's, I didn't like it, so I keep forgetting. Ah, yeah, After Sun. After Sun is like a documentary that's not a documentary that is the documentary. Is it a documentary? It's not a documentary, you know? So, you owe us fiction. You owe us your audiences. Marvel? No, I'm teasing. But this is, like, I think, a perfect place to wrap up because I would like to send these people back to the cinema where they have, like, come from and prefer to be. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. Thanks for listening. If you like what you just heard, please be sure to subscribe to get future episodes. 